I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, War in Ukraine. The Biden administration announces hundreds of new sanctions against Russia. We're at the White House. Protecting the country. On day three of a major gathering of conservatives, the focus turns to national security. A major draw. An artist left her job to work at a parish in Kansas City. See the results of her work. And a night to remember. One man's journey from addiction to recovery and why he credits his newfound happiness to blessed Michael McGivney. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Polycarp. Our top story tonight, President Joe Biden says if Russian President Vladimir Putin does not pay the price for his death and destruction, then he will keep going. Biden's warning comes on the eve of the second anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. Now the U.S. is unveiling new sanctions on Russia. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Well, good evening to you, Tracy. And tonight, President Joe Biden says those sanctions you referred to will ensure Vladimir Putin pays an even steeper price for his aggression abroad and repression at home. And he adds, the president adds, we are taking action to further reduce Russia's energy revenues. In Ukraine, firefighters battling flames, three people killed in what authorities say was a Russian attack in Odessa. That's why I'm announcing more than 500 new sanctions. And at the White House today, while welcoming the nation's governors, President Joe Biden lays out the new punishment on Russia. In response to Putin's brutal war of conquest, in response to uh, Alexei Navalny's death, because make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Alexei's death. Earlier, the president released a statement saying the sanctions will target individuals connected to Navalny's imprisonment, as well as Russia's financial sector, defense industrial base, procurement networks, and sanctions evaders across multiple continents. Alexei was an incredibly courageous man. His family is courageous as well. I assured them his legacy will continue to live around the world, and we in the United States are going to continue to ensure that Putin pays the price for his aggression abroad and repression at home. And the U.S. State Department is sanctioning three Russian officials the U.S. says are connected to Navalny's death. Vladimir Putin saw it necessary to persecute, poison, and imprison one man. Speaks volumes, not about Russia's strength under Putin, but its weakness. For now, Putin seems undeterred. Today, he praised the Russian military and its new arsenal of hypersonic missiles. And critics tonight say failing to cut meaningfully into Russia's energy revenues from oil will not be enough to halt the war, and that measures meant to stop Russia's invasion are not working fast enough. And in his speech today before governors, President Biden said history is watching, the clock is ticking, and urged Congress to send more aid to Ukraine. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. Let's bring in Stephen Moore. He spent seven years as a GOP chief of staff and senior leadership aide in Congress and is now president of the Ukraine Freedom Project, a nonprofit which delivers humanitarian and military aid to the front line. Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Uh, for the last two years, the U.S. has targeted Russia with sanctions. Yet, despite all of this, 
the Russian economy has actually grown. So why do you think this time would be different? Well, it's not a lack of sanctions that are the problem. It's a lack of enforcement. And, you know, what you've seen is that Russian trade with Kazakhstan uh, has gone up some like, you know, 400, 500 percent. And German trade with Kazakhstan has gone up 400 or 500 percent. So um, it's great. Doing these sanctions is better than not doing these sanctions. But at the same time, um, if we could really crank up the dial on enforcement, that would be you know, what would be helpful. And and just as one example, American companies are still doing business in Russia, like Procter & Gamble, the parent company of Gillette, uh, you know, the biggest Gillette razor manufacturing facility in the world is in St. Petersburg. So there's a lot of people that are still helping the Russian economy. Besides sanctions, um, anything else you think the U.S. should do in this case? Yeah, um, <laughs> it would be nice to see some more weapons come to Ukraine. Um, I get messages from my friends at the front. I've been at the front a dozen times. I live in Kyiv. I've been in Ukraine since day five of the war. And so um, I know what's happening there. And my friends at the front tell me we're running out of ammunition for our AKs. We are, you know, for every, for every shell, artillery shell we send over, the Russians send back 20. And this is not sustainable. So as Congress you know, works in their district and not on the floor of the house, there's Ukrainians dying. And, you know, if, if Putin pushes through these lines and takes Ukraine, then the world does not become more stable. The world becomes very unstable because the next one in line is Poland, Finland, Latvia, and, uh, and all these countries know it because they're the ones dumping so much of their GDP into Ukraine. So, um, but if American leadership evaporates with Ukraine, the world becomes really, really ugly. Stephen, we have maybe 30 seconds left or so, um, but how do you see this all ending? I mean, will it end anytime soon? Well, you know, what I found is that when you give the Ukrainians the weapons they need, they win. Because in the first year of the war, Biden was, you know, pumping weapons in there. The Ukrainians were taking them. They took back all but 17 percent of their territory. Uh, they've they've destroyed like 5,500 Russian tanks. Uh, there's more like 20 times as many Russians have died in Ukraine over two years as Soviets died in Afghanistan over 10 years. So the losses are massive on the Russian side. And if we could just keep the Ukrainians supplied with weapons, they will do the work. They will win. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your insights. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be with you. Our Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is in Ukraine to mark the two-year anniversary of the start of the war. He and four other Democratic senators are part of a congressional delegation. The trip also comes after the Senate passed a $60 billion aid package for Ukraine. 
Senator Schumer says that he hopes this shows Ukraine America stands with them and to NATO. The U.S. is not deserting Europe. The U.S. House has yet to consider the measure. Lawmakers return to Capitol Hill next week. Now to the war in the Middle East. In the past 24 hours, Israeli strikes have killed 100 Palestinians. The offensive comes as the head of Hamas was in Egypt discussing a possible ceasefire and exchange of hostages. The Israeli military released this footage of an operation in the Gaza Strip. The offensive has driven the vast majority of the region's 2.3 million citizens from their homes. Meantime, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has released the long-awaited post-war plan for the Gaza Strip. Tel Aviv is seeking open-ended control over security and civilian affairs. Those plans were swiftly rejected by Palestinian leaders. And in Poland, lawmakers have voted to approve over-the-counter access to an abortion pill. The measure is open to people ages 15 and older. It is a step toward loosening abortion restrictions in the Catholic country. Currently, abortion is legal only if the mother's health is in danger or in the case of rape. Back here in the United States, it is day three of the Conservative Political Action Conference outside of our nation's capital. Items on the agenda include the push against transgender rights and voting fraud. Many conservatives also warn about security threats to the United States from foreign adversaries and what could be done about them. Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales is at CPAC and has that story. Good evening, Tracy. You know, most of the people I've talked with here at CPAC believe that the United States is at great risk by foreign adversaries. They say it's only a matter of time. Former Reagan administration national security expert Frank Gaffney tells me more than 100,000 Chinese nationals have entered the U.S. over the last three years. Some of them communist special operations with biological warfare experience. They may well be able to execute on what we've been told is the mission of the Chinese People's Liberation Army Biological Warfare Program, which is depopulating the United States. Death and destruction. Depopulating the United States so that it can be colonized by China. Some say Frank Gaffney is a conspiracy theorist. Last fall, thousands of vials of biological substances, including some labeled HIV and a freezer marked Ebola, were found inside of a secret Chinese-owned biolab in central California. A House report found the owner, who faces federal charges, had ties to the Chinese military. Author Gordon Chang tells me packs of single Chinese men, some with links to the military, are crossing the border. Chinese migrants who were in the U.S. for less than three weeks, who had come across the border with no money, no identification, and they were taking target practice with pistols and rifles. We also know of, of at least one instance where Chinese migrants have been engaged in an act of sabotage. And this, was, this is serious. A number of intelligence officials are saying a 9-11, another one, could happen very soon. No, it will. It will. I mean, it, it is absolutely inevitable. You know, if you allow people into your country who don't have your best interests at heart, if you have no control over it, bad stuff will happen. Uh, and it's just madness. A complete madness. I mean, frankly, Trump should win the election on that issue alone. Conservatives blame President Biden's open-door border policies for allowing terrorists into the country. While on Capitol Hill, Democrats blame Republicans and Donald Trump. But our Republican colleagues are not serious about doing anything about the challenges at the border. 
because they've been ordered by Donald Trump to walk away from solving the problem in a common sense fashion. The lawmakers I've talked with here at CPAC tell me that more needs to be done to protect against terrorist attacks, starting with tightening the southern border, something President Biden is now considering with executive orders, including restricting asylum claims. Former President Donald Trump will address CPAC tomorrow and most likely will address this issue as well. In Maryland at the CPAC conference, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including Palmetto State Primary, a report from South Carolina ahead of tomorrow's crucial GOP contest. anticipated South Carolina Republican primary takes place tomorrow. A Real Clear Politics poll shows former President Donald Trump holding a 25-point lead over the state's former governor, Nikki Haley. Despite the large gap, Haley vows to stay in the race with Super Tuesday a little more than a week away. And joining us now from Columbia, South Carolina, is Philip Crowther, international affiliate correspondent for the Associated Press. Philip, good to be with you as always. Uh, give us a sense of the atmosphere of where you are right now and what is voter turnout looking like so far? Well, I can tell you that uh, what we're experiencing here certainly makes uh, a nice change to the last time we spoke. Uh, that was in New Hampshire. Remember, very cold conditions. Before that was Iowa. No blizzards are taking, keeping uh, voters from the polls uh, here in South Carolina. Uh, voting will actually begin this Saturday at 7 a.m. Local time finishes at 7 p.m. And in fact, quite a few of those votes are already in. There was early voting here in this Republican primary uh, this year with 139,000 votes already cast. Uh, at least. This is an open primary, by the way. Now, what that means is that pretty much every registered voter in this state can vote in the Republican primary. They don't have to be registered as Republicans. What this means is that only those 4%, 4% of the population of South Carolina who voted in the Democratic primary, they will not be allowed to vote here. Now, that opens up that possibility that Democrats, those who maybe will vote for Joe Biden eventually in the presidential election, might move to the other Republican side and give their point of view in the Republican primary here in South Carolina. Avila, what are Trump and Haley saying to voters? What messages are they trying to get out? Well, look, uh, Nikki Haley, the former governor of uh, South Carolina, she was governor here for six years. She's been crisscrossing her home state over the last three weeks uh, between the last truly contested uh, primary in New Hampshire and this one here in South Carolina. She's been on her Beast of the Southeast bus tour uh, of her home state. Uh, now, she's, of course, calling for everybody in this state. And that might include Democrats as well. She has, hasn't said so openly to vote for her, despite the polls not looking all too great for her. She's been campaigning in her home state, and Donald Trump, the former president, of course, has been campaigning here as, as well. He is at a rally right now. We expect him here in the capital, Columbia, later today as well. But let's go back to Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina. Here's some of what she said uh, here in her home state just a short while ago. I will promise you the same thing I promised you when you elected me governor twice before. I will spend every single day proving to you that you made a good decision 
God bless you. Thank you. Let's get out the vote. Thank you so much. A few of the things that Nikki Haley has repeated throughout her campaign here in South Carolina ever since what she considered a good result in the New Hampshire primary is that she is the only Republican who can beat Joe Biden in the presidential election. That is something that her campaign, again, in a call with reporters just a few hours ago, insisted upon again and again. She's the only one that can get a Republican in the White House in that presidential election. She's also, of course, said this one thing again and again, that this would be a race between two old white men and that she would be the person who can essentially renew the Republican Party. Afila, what issues do you think are motivating voters in this primary? There has really been much speculation that the recent Alabama Supreme Court decision ruling that frozen embryos created through in vitro fertilization, well, they can be legally considered unborn children. Do you think that will factor into the race, you know, especially when it comes to suburban women? Well, it's a headline that came surprisingly into this primary here in South Carolina, but I don't think it will be a, a considerable factor. Why? Because the two candidates have already essentially given their points of view on this, and that includes former President Donald Trump on a Truth Social post on his social media uh, channel. He said in the last hour that he is for uh, in vitro fertilization treatment. He is for IVF and is against that Alabama Supreme Court ruling. That is not necessarily Nikki Haley's point of view. Hers is not particularly clear. Uh, she seems to disagree with that ruling, but still does say that she considers embryos to be babies. Now, this brings us also, of course, uh, to a very important debate in this election, not just the Republican primaries, but also the general election when it comes to it, and that is who, which candidate is more pro-life. And in that case, we've heard from neither candidate saying that they are for a federal abortion ban. These are questions that will be asked again and again at these two candidates, and there hasn't been a clear answer yet from either candidate on the campaign trail. All right, we're going to leave it right there. Philip, always great to be with you. Philip Crowther in South Carolina for us tonight. Thank you. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, an exhibition 80 years in the making. Faces of the past bring the World War II story of Castile Gandolfo to the present. Welcome back. The Castel Gandolfo is known as the summer residence of the Pope. It was also the site of a tragic attack as part of World War II in February 1944. Our EWTN Vatican Bureau has more. The Pope opened the Papal Palace in Castel Gandolfo and the gardens to more than 12,000 people uh, to, to, to welcome them and to save them. During World War II, the Apostolic Palace in the Propaganda Fide College became a refuge for thousands of people fleeing the devastating effects of the conflict. However, the protection offered by the walls of the Holy See, a neutral country in the war, was not enough to escape the bombing. An exhibition presented at Castel Gandolfo, summer residence of the Popes, seeks to commemorate the February 10, 1944, U.S. bombing that claimed some 500 victims. The Vatican Museums and the direction of the Pontifical Palace uh, really wanted to have this for, for memory, 
for um, for our heritage uh, because it's it's a good story to to share. It's a story of um, affair. It's a story of war, but also it's a story of welcoming, of help, of um, of what the Pope wanted for for a population in war. Pope Pius XII had done his utmost to prevent the tragedy, offering shelter in the most private rooms of the palace. The Pope's welcome allowed the birth of 36 babies during the first months. The exhibition, entitled Castel Gandolfo 1944, is curated by Luca Carboni and aims to tell the story of those dramatic weeks, the survivors, but also the victims. This picture had never had a name. By the very will of the child's father, who had lost her, her sister, and her mother here. Today, though, the surviving sister authorized me to give the name Fernanda. That is a picture that looks like hope, but unfortunately, that little girl with her head bandaged died two days later. In this photograph, she was only four years old. In Rome, Anthony Johnson, EWTN News Nightly. Well, a new book examines one man's journey from alcoholism to peace and happiness. And the author credits his road to recovery to a well-known relative on his path to sainthood, the founder of the Knights of Columbus. You're a Miracle, my story of alcoholism, miraculous healing, and God's infinite power in love by Joe McGivney details his personal struggle with alcoholism and how, after hitting rock bottom, his life miraculously turned around with the intercession of Blessed Michael McGivney. And the author of that book, Joe McGivney, joins us now along with his wife, Nicole. Thank you both so much for coming on today. We really appreciate it. Joe, I, I want to start off with you. Tell us more about your struggles with alcoholism. And what finally happened when you hit rock bottom? Yeah, I, my um, starting in early childhood, um, I fell in love with drinking. Um, it, you know, when I was a child, I had a lot of fear and anxiety and always felt like I didn't belong. So that uh, early on, I think at 12 years old, I found that, you know, alcohol could make all those things drift away. And uh, throughout my entire life, including my adult life, um, my drinking and alcoholism just progressed and progressed and progressed. Um, but it all came to a, a very frightening end on December 30th of 2020, you know, in the heat of COVID, um, where my body, after all those years of abusing alcohol, completely collapsed and gave out. And I spent the next nine weeks um, in institution after institution um, I had developed a neurological condition called Korsakoff psychosis in my family. My beautiful wife, Nicole, were told that I would be completely psychotic for the rest of my life. And uh, that was exactly, in fact, three years ago tonight, I was in that locked psych ward. Well, Joe, I mean, I can't imagine what you were going through during that time. And Nicole, you as well, because as we well know, you know, someone's alcoholism does, doesn't affect that one person. It affects other people as well, and it affected you. Um, what was it like for you to see Joe during this time and see him through his addiction, go through this breakdown, and then also be miraculously healed? It was such a very, very dark time. 
very touch and go throughout the whole period. And I just was so, so, so depressed, so sad, just lost. And I felt so broken and honestly abandoned. I just, I, I felt like, my goodness, how could this possibly be? This amazing, beautiful guy with all these great qualities do this to himself, be so self-destructive. In addition, how it impacts the family and the ripple effect and how it had a huge impact on our marriage and the destructiveness of it all. Um, it just, it was a very, very sad time. And I lost a lot of weight. Um, I could barely stay afloat. So it was very frightening, very frightening. And we came you know, very close to losing him a couple times. And I just, I was just so devastated and And then with the incredible intercession of Blessed Michael McGivney, everything turned around quickly. Um, Joe, I don't know if you want to take this and tell us what exactly happened. Sure. So I was in this um, treatment facility where I had been transferred to after the lock psych court said we can't hold him any longer. Long story short, um, the day after I was transferred from the psych ward into this treatment facility, I woke up completely 100% healed, no deficits to that time. And then we, what was obviously, you know, a questionable miracle, always left me wondering, well, why? And then a few months later, I learned that one of my relatives, a devout Catholic woman, my aunt Jerry, was praying fervently to Blessed Michael McGivney to intercede to God and heal me. And he believed to this day that it was Father Michael's intercession that results resulted in the miracle that God blessed me. That is absolutely incredible. And what a miracle indeed. We're almost out of time, Joe and Nicole. But quickly, um, Joe, I want to ask you this. What do you hope people get from your book? And also, where can they get this inspiring book? Sure. Well, we really want two things. Number one, to raise awareness for the cause of canonization for Blessed Michael. And two, to the individuals and families that struggle with alcoholism and addiction, to give them hope. And um, you can find our book at, on Amazon. At, the, the name of the book is You're a Miracle with an exclamation point. And uh, again, available on Amazon or through our website, which is joemcgivney.com. Well, thank you both so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. It's really important to talk about this. God bless you both for sharing your story. We appreciate it. Thank, thank you, you, Tracy. So God bless you. And finally, tonight, an artist in Kansas City has given up her day job to paint murals for her parish. Maddie Carr accepted a commission at Holy Name of Jesus Parish in Kansas City. The pastor organized the fundraising and built the 15 feet tall panels all himself. She has done paintings of the descent of the Holy Spirit and the presentation of Jesus. Carr says that art in our churches often can lead people to a higher level of spirituality indeed and we thank you for watching tonight remember you can follow us on social media facebook x and instagram at ewtn news nightly i'm tracy sable good night and god bless